This episode is sponsored by Frontend Masters. They have a terrific lineup of live courses you can attend either online or in person. They also have a terrific backlog of courses you can watch, including JavaScript Good Parts, Build Web Applications with Node.js, AngularJS In-Depth, and Advanced JavaScript. You can go check them out at frontendmasters.com. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on JavaScript developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average JavaScript developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with a company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $1,000 bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the JavaScript Jabber link, you'll get a $2,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash JavaScript Jabber. Let's face it, bookkeeping is hard, and it's not really what you're good at anyway. Bench.co is the online bookkeeping service that pairs you with a team of dedicated bookkeepers who use simple, elegant software to do your bookkeeping for you. Check it out at bench.co slash JavaScript Jabber for 20% off today. They focus on what matters most, and that's why they're there. Once again, that's bench.co slash JavaScript Jabber. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 210 of the JavaScript Jabber Show. This week on our panel, we have Amy Knight. Hello. And Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. A uh, quick shout-out for React Remote Cop coming up in about a month. We also have a special guest this week, and that's Valery Karpov. Thanks, Chuck. As Chuck mentioned, my name is Valery Karpov. I'm formerly of MongoDB. I now work doing Node for a small startup called Booster Fuels. They do on-demand gas delivery. And I'm here to talk about my new ebook, The 8020 Guide to ES 2015 Generators. So I have to ask, because I'm having this vision of like a tanker pulling up outside my house. Gas deliveries? Yeah. We focus primarily on large corporate parking lots, so we wouldn't be able to fuel you up at your house. Aww. Corporate parking lots tend to be a little, a little bit more controlled environments. Gotcha. So people just pull in and you fuel the fleet? More or less. The general idea is you go, uh, you drive into work in the morning, you pull out your phone, you tell us where your car is and, you know, that fact that you want it to get fueled up. Over the course of the day, somebody comes, fuels it up, and when you're ready to go home from work, you got a full gas tank, windshield wiped, and you ended up saving money on gas because we, we actually undercut local area gas stations. Oh, that makes sense. So we brought you on today now that we've talked about gas is uh, generators, and not gas generators, but actual uh, ES2015 generators. Do you want to kind of give us the high-level view of what they are? Sure. At a conceptual level, a generator function is a function that can sort of pause its execution and resume executing at some later point when a function, when somebody else tells it to start executing. Um, in the book, I discuss, I define them as sort of functions that allow reentry. So when you return from a function, the function is done forever. Uh, the local uh, the stack frame is gone for good. With a generator, the function can yield, and then it can pick up where it left off at a later time. So does it get allocate, allocated on the stack then, or does it go on the heap as an actual object? Well, so a generator function is effectively a constructor for a generator object. So that technically goes on the heap, 
but I don't really know the exact details myself, but I'd imagine it has something to do with how closures work. I don't really know the particular details of how memory management works for generators. Okay, okay that, that's really interesting what you just said, because when you create one, you don't call new on it, though? Uh, no, it's a... So a generator function is something that you call to get back a generator object. So it's technically not a constructor. You don't have to call it with new. Okay. Okay. So I was just making sure, because when you said constructor, because I know like the stuff I've looked at, you don't call new on it. But if you said constructor, I was like, well, wait a minute. Now I'm really confused. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Yeah, but, but, Incorrect but, terminology. Yeah. But no. the idea is similar, right? That it's effectively a factory for uh, generator objects. Yes. Exactly. And and the difference is, is yeah, it's it's more implicit when you're talking about a factory than when you're talking about a constructor. Yeah. And what makes generators really exciting in my mind and what really got me into them was the, uh, was the library Co by TJ. Basically, a flow control library lets you write async code without any callbacks, without calling dot then, without having to really worry about promises or anything like that. And also gives you consistent uh, error handling behavior. So you can use try catch to catch asynchronous errors as well as logical errors. So you can use try catch to say catch errors that would occur from like say, I don't know, a undefined variable as well as errors that would occur if say uh, a HTTP request couldn't reach the particular URL. Yeah, but how, how do you actually use, I, I don't know if I quite follow that. So I understand try-catch. I've used several languages that use it more heavily than I've used it in Ruby or JavaScript. But I'm wondering, so how does try-catch play into generators or vice versa? So, so how do you one use of, a generator to manage error states or things that are uh, thrown? So a generator object has two functions on it. There's, or, well, more functions than that probably, but there's two that are really important, which are dot next and dot throw. So when a generator pauses its execution using yield, the function that's interacting with the generator object can call dot throw on the generator object. And within the generator function, that will look like the yield statement through an exception, which then you can handle with a try catch. A try catch inside of the generator, you mean? Yeah, a try-catch inside of the generator function. Okay, one of the things that's necessary to distinguish here is a generator function, which sort of defines the logic flow for how a generator works, and then an actual generator object, which is a instantiation of the generator function that you could call next and throw on. So next will resume the execution wherever it left off, and throw will resume execution, but also trigger an error so you can do a try-catch. So fundamentally, how a library like Co works is, let's say a generator function yields a promise. What you can do is take that promise, do dot then on it, and then resume the generator's execution when the promise has resolved. Or if the promise errored, you do a dot throw on the generator. So what you get back is in... Iterable, correct? So a generator object is an iterable, but a okay. gener no, a generator function is an iterable, but a generator object is not. Okay. So I think the classic example that I see for generators is something like the Fibonacci sequence, right? Where effectively you're putting out 
a series of numbers. And so when you call dot next, you just get the next number in the series. I'm, I'm a little bit confused, I guess, in the distinction there between the generator object and the generator function, if I'm getting an integer back from mm -hmm. some of these. So a generator function is the function star declaration, right? Mm -hmm. That creates a new generator function. And to create a generator, which is the common name for a generator object, you call the generator function. Okay. And then once you have the generator object, that's what you're calling dot next on in order to get the next number in the Fibonacci sequence. Yes, exactly. And now, actually, very interesting example that I go into a lot of detail in my book about the Fibonacci sequence. So the nice, neat thing about generators is it also lets you separate sort of the scheduling of your of when code runs from the actual logic itself. So one particular example that I go into is an asynchronous Fibonacci uh, computation. So like, let's say you want to compute the billionth Fibonacci number without blocking the event loop. With, uh, with generators, or if you wrote the Fibonacci logic with generators to say yield every time you compute any number, it's very easy. You just put the, uh, you just put generator.next in a set interval. And now you're basically computing the next Fibonacci number on say every iteration of the event loop or every second. Yeah. But if you need the millionth one, is there a way to skip like next 1000 or 1000th next or something like that? Uh, yes. But uh, if you write the Fibonacci computation logic, the actual logic that does, you know, the actual for loop for computing the Fibonacci sequence, and it yields every time it computes a new Fibonacci number, you can compute the Fibonacci sequence however you want. You can compute it in a set interval, computing a new Fibonacci number every second. You can, say, compute a thousand and then wake up in another second and compute the next thousand, so on and so forth. So the scheduling of when you compute the next Fibonacci number is actually completely independent of the logic of actually computing the Fibonacci number. Right. And that's ultimately the power of generators, right? Is that your logic and the state that's involved in executing that logic is tied up in the generator and the timing is just whenever you come around and say next. Yeah, exactly. So where do we see people using this? I mean, you mentioned the co-library. What, what are some of the other applications for generators? And I think Co is kind of like the 80-20 of it. Co really does like a very good job of sort of letting you do good flow control right now in modern JavaScript. People always talk about async await, but on the other hand, I spent a good portion of last year working on a MongoDB ODM based on object.observe. So I know very well firsthand what happens when you rely on a stage three TC39 proposal. Because, well, <laughs> just because it's a stage three doesn't mean that it's ever going to be in the language. So, right, if you use Co, you get the sort of the same behavior as async await with slightly different syntax. Actually, transpilers that uh, transpile async await pretty much compile down into Co, which is kind of funny. But yeah, so that's the most important use case. Um, that's actually the one that I've used most often. The only other use case that I really see is sort of the ability to break up long-running computations, which is another interesting thing in JavaScript because, well, since JavaScript is single-threaded, you can't really, at least before generators, there was really no good way for you to, say, break up like a really long-running calculation that would block the event loop in a very good way. 
like calculating the billionth Fibonacci number. Now with generators, you can. Before we go a lot further to give people context, I think one question that is commonly asked, so why in ES6 would they come out with promises, native promises, and generators? Like what is the use case for having both? They're not necessarily competing proposals. They're very much complementary, I think. For instance, like what generators are about for me is primarily Co and uh, and the WebSocket or the Web Framework Coa. That's kind of the big use case that I see. But those don't really work as well without promises, because the thing is, in order for code to work, you need to be able to yield an object, some sort of object, and that object needs to be able to encapsulate the state of an asynchronous operation. Hence why promises end up being a very nice fit for how uh, for how code works. When you yield a promise, code is smart enough to do adopt then on the promise and resume execution whenever the promise has resolved or errored. And with a uh, with sort of an old style callback, you couldn't really do that because you didn't really have an object representation. There are other asynchronous objects that you can use, like a thunk, but thunks aren't quite as clean as promises in terms of error handling. So to make sure I understand too, I'm not sure if this is something with just generators, like the spec or a COA thing, but I should also be able to yield to another generator. Is that correct as far as the spec or is that just a COA thing? Not necessarily, unless you use the yield star operator. But in most cases, you don't have to do that. Co is actually smart enough to take uh, to let you yield on a generator function. Okay. Okay. Um, so okay. internally, what Co does is say, okay, if you yielded a generator function, I'm just going to wrap that in a call to Co itself and pretend that it's a promise. Okay. So what does yield star do? And that's native then. Yield star is native. And yield star basically takes in a, I can't remember if it's a generator function or a generator object or both, but general idea is it takes in a generator and basically yields everything that that generator would. So if you do like yield star Fibonacci of five, that's the same as saying, okay, yield the first Fibonacci number, yield the second, yield the third, yield the fourth, yield the fifth. Okay. Mm. And then we talked a little bit a minute ago about async await. So do you think that like async await is something valuable or like better than generators? Or do you think that there's kind of no need for it? I have yet to really see a use case where async await has an advantage over co and yield. I'm not saying that it doesn't exist because I haven't used async await that much beyond a simple hello world example. My current argument is just co and yield works with the current established JavaScript spec. It works with ES2015 with no transpilers or anything. Whereas async await, you would need to transpile it and you don't have any idea if, say, the proposal is going to get withdrawn or changed at any point in the future or if the proposal will ever get into the language at all anyway. Yep. What about people who get, like, really fired up about this stuff? <laughs> like, say, like, you know, I have promises. Those are working just fine for me. Is there, other than, like, like it's better on the eyes? Are there specific benefits? Well, obviously, too, like you can't necessarily do the exact same thing. But if you are using generators just for like in place of promises, do you think there are like other added benefits there? I think probably the biggest advantage is a common error handling is well, common error handling 
So when you do, uh, when you have, say, a bunch of operations with promises, you always have to remember to say dot catch them. You need to, that gets a little bit messy after a while. With Co, if you're yielding promises, you can do a nice little dot catch at the very end of your Co call because what the Co function actually returns is a promise. So then you can say, I've written a bunch of logic. If it crashes at any point, catch it uh, with this error handler, which actually ends up saving me an awful lot of headache these days because, well, yeah, I, I occasionally forget to do a dot catch on a promise or something like that and just goes wrong. People often complain about you know people use, misusing promises by not specifying dot catch or not specifying yeah. error handlers. Yeah. With Co, it makes it an awful lot easier to just define a catch-all error handler for your entire, say, REST API route or your entire Redux uh, middleware handler or whatever. So I, I kind of get the idea of maybe wrapping a promise in a generator, and we've talked a bit about that. I'm kind of curious, though, why you would wrap a generator in a promise like what Co does. I'm looking at Co right now with its example. What does that give you? Because... It seems like I think about the generators as kind of a an ongoing stream where I can or an ongoing place where I can keep going back and getting more stuff, more values, more whatever out of it. Right. So if I go back to it, you know, if I wrap it in a promise, the promise seems like it's it's a one time deal. Right. Where I call dot then on it and it resolves and I'm done with the promise. So, yes. so how did the two kind of resolve themselves together that way? So a generator doesn't necessarily have to be infinite. It can terminate after a certain period of time. And the point of wrapping, of co-wrapping its generator function in a promise is essentially that when you're writing a generator function that you want to pass it to co, what you're doing is you are basically yielding promises and then resuming execution when the, uh, when that promise has resolved. So it lets you write very simple, clean code where you say, okay, you know, yield superagent.get to make an HTTP request to google.com. I assign that to a variable like, say, const Google homepage HTML. I manipulate the HTML and I'm done and say, return it. Now, code gives you a nice neat wrapper around that where you could say, okay, you know, I'm going to write all of this logic that's going to yield a bunch of promises. And then at the very end, I'm going to get back the final return value of my logic. So there's, I guess it's a sort of different way of thinking about generators. It's a way of code necessarily is more about... Um, it's about workflow. It's not about yeah. managing a stream or series of values. Yes, exactly. It's more about sort of coordinating and composing asynchronous code than it is necessarily about generating values. I think there is an article that I read that I felt like worded this really, really well. So, and it was by uh, Getify or Kyle Simpson, but he like says, you know, when you yield, it's kind of like you're making a request and then uh, when you call next, then you're getting the response. Yeah. Like kind of think of it that way. Yeah. Yep. And again, the big part of chapter two of the book or the point of it is to sort of build you up to writing your own code from scratch. Code itself is not a terribly complex library. It actually, you can pretty much implement your own in about 50 lines of JavaScript. Just the, uh, I feel like it's one of the best ways to learn generators is just kind of like really understand at a deep level how code works. So one thing I'm also wondering about with generators in general is testing. 
So I think when we talk about asynchronous programming, you know, people's heads explode when they go, okay, now I'm going to test this. Wait, what? So, so how do you get around that? I mean, do you use some of the same techniques you use for other asynchronous programming? Are there specialized tools or techniques for testing generators? Well, I actually find code to be an absolute godsend for testing. And that's actually where I first started using it was integration testing for my APIs. So when I say create an express app and I have a API to say get all current, all logged in users right now. Make when I uh, using code and something like say Super Agent or whatever HTTP client you prefer comes really easy to just do things like oh okay let me insert a bunch of data into the database using a yield and then I'm going to do uh, Super Agent on the route that I'm trying to test make sure that I got back the correct results wipe out the database go on to the next test. Gotcha. One other thing that I'm seeing here is that it says on co the ultimate generator-based flow control goodness for Node.js. So is this not well-suited for the front end? Actually, it works just fine if you pipe it through Babel. At Booster, we actually have a couple of cases where, yeah, we uh, we use Co and front-end code. It was initially written for Node.js, but that was kind of before the rise of Babel and the rise of sort of like transpilers for ES2015 into uh, to ES5. That's really interesting. Can you kind of talk about that more? Because I am only familiar with it being used on the back end. I think right now our primary use case involves just, you know, Redux middleware in our mobile app. We Our action creators use code to build up a promise that can then be handled by the Redux middleware. So do things like, oh, okay, you know, load the current user. And if we have the current user, let me do this thing. Otherwise, let me do this thing. Okay. Is that something that you guys have built yourselves or is there actually like a library out there that you can use? I'm pretty sure there are uh, Redux middleware for promises libraries or well, a library out there that does, um, that gives you a Redux middleware for handling promises. We actually wrote our own. I don't know off the top of my head. It's a very simple thing to do. So in an attempt to allow you to sound humble, I'm going to ask you about your book. Um, oh, okay. You know, that way you don't have to bring it up yourself. But uh, anyway, I, I'm curious, what are you hoping that people get out of the book? I mean, is it generally what we've talked about here on the show? Or are there other things in the book that people are going to learn that we just don't have the time or the proper medium to actually demonstrate in an audio podcast? Yeah, the focus of the book is to give you a very clean, concise guide to generators as defined in the ES2015 spec. And in order to sort of build you up to having a good understanding, it walks you through building your own version of Co, of Coa, which is sort of a web framework express-like thing based on Co, and Regenerator, which is Facebook's transpiler for uh, transpiles generators into ES5 code. So basically, build out a quick proof of concept for Co, Coa, and Regenerator over the course of about five chapters, and. Once you're done with that, hopefully you have uh, you're pretty much an expert, pretty much an expert on generators, or at least comfortable enough to use Coa and Coa in production. And is Coa just a backend framework? Yeah, imagine Express but using generators for middleware. So instead of doing, say, instead of calling next as a function, you do yield next, and you get the same result. Yeah, I think we did an episode on it a long time ago. We should probably revisit it. Yeah. Koa is a very powerful library. The book primarily focuses, though, on Koa Compose, 
which is the uh, the npm module that enables koa to use generator based middleware so the yield next paradigm gotcha and i think the other pretty interesting thing about the book is that i kind of built it as an experiment in how to scale test driven tech writing because actually the book is fundamentally in its uncompiled form it's literally just a mocha test suite and a bunch of markdown files so i actually kind of wrote it as a using basically writing tests first then writing a bunch of markdown to explain the tests and then compiling that all into a nice little PDF. You'd be surprised how many other tech writers, programming writers I know that have a similar setup one way or the other. And effectively, yeah, that's what they do. Can you yield from a generator more than once in a single .next call? No, because .next executes until the next yield statement. Okay, so... I can have multiple yield statements then in my generator and it'll just go down the line until it hits them all. Yeah, exactly. And the neat thing about generators is that you can say you can yield within a for loop and that may, and with co actually, it makes it very easy to do things like retry if something failed because you say, you know, wrap it in a while loop while this request hasn't succeeded try yielding it. If it fails, retry, otherwise break out of the loop. And kind of lets you use sort of the old synchronous style paradigms with asynchronous code. That's actually really slick because you just call dot next and it tries again. Yeah, I really, I really like that until you get an actual value out of it. That's not, uh, oh darn, it failed. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. And one of the reasons why I really wrote this book was it was just it was difficult to kind of make junior devs comfortable with things like, oh, okay, if, um, say, yielding in a for loop or yielding in an if statement in a generator function and passing that into Co, they, for some reason, always think like, oh, this can't possibly work, can it? And the long and short of it is, yes, it does work. That actually brings me to another question. So, like, this looks so nice, but do you think there should be, like, any fear that, like, it's abstracting so much? that you're not really understanding very clearly what it's abstracting? Well, that's what the book is for. It's a, <laughs> it's a 50 line library. You can very easily understand what's going on there. If you either read my book or just go dig into the source code, it's not particularly complicated. Just the general idea is pretty simple. I don't really think it abstracts away too much. And that's one thing that I actually really like about it is it's a simple enough abstraction where you can just kind of rock it in an hour but it's also uh, sufficiently powerful that it, like really changes how you write uh, asynchronous code. It makes things an awful lot cleaner. So yeah. how long's your book? Um, it's exactly fifty pages. I was going to say you, you you know it sounds so simple. I was going to say if it's like a five hundred page book, I mean we're missing something. But yeah, fifty pages that makes sense with yeah. kind of where we've gone here. That makes a lot more sense. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, meant to be a very short, targeted, concise guide. Like you sit down, read it in an hour or two. Because another thing I always kind of hated about tech books was I could never, uh, I could never finish a tech book. I always just, you know, get about two hundred pages in and then I give up. Yeah, I, I kind of came to a place with that yesterday. I was talking to a podcast listener, and she asked me, "What did people do before the internet to get help?" And I said, well, you know, all those tech books that you see that you can buy that are like 600 pages long. And she's like, yeah, I said, those are reference manuals for a reason. And they were writing those in the late 80s, early 90s, before we had the web and had Stack Overflow and Google and other nice places to look. 
because that's where they had to find those answers. And I think we have a lot of carryover from that where the, you know, the publishing companies still expect a technical book to be a comprehensive manual instead of, you know, a short treatment of a simple topic that gives you the pieces you need to actually go build something with the assumption that there are good resources for the edge cases somewhere else. Yeah, that's a fair point. That's kind of a different way of saying what I was thinking as well, which is tech books tend to kind of try to be everything for everyone and not realizing that, oh, typically somebody is just going to look up the answer to a question on Stack Overflow rather than, you know, going through a book that they had previously read and going to the right page. So what I kind of think that the future of tech writing can be is that a book would kind of be more of a consolidated, something that's slightly bigger than a blog post, but still sufficiently concise that you can sort of read through it and understand what it's trying to get at. So sort of a consolidation of a bunch of Stack Overflow answers into one readable, digestible format where you kind of sit down for an hour and it makes it so that you don't have to go find a bunch of different resources yourself. But the key point there is it needs to be something that you can digest quickly. I don't really think in the future we're going to be sitting around for about like three weeks reading like an Atlas Shrugged like tome of a, you know, Angular book. Yeah, I agree. How old is the book? Because I'm kind of curious what your process was in putting it together. Oh, uh, the book was released, I believe, January 26th of this year, give or take. Okay. Um, but yeah, the process was generally, I wrote an outline, I wrote a bunch of tests, I wrote some markdown, I played around with a bunch of different libraries to figure out how I could compile my test suite into a PDF, ended up, um, ended up using a transpiler that I wrote a few years back that transpiles Mocha test suites into markdown, and a browser automation library called Nightmare. Uh, it's built by uh, by the guys over at Segments, the uh, the analytics company. It gives you a very nice ability to uh, render a page in print mode and then compile that into a PDF. Have you written other things in the past? Actually, yes. This is my second book. My first book was uh, was published by Wiley. It was a uh, professional Angular JS. So it was like Wiley's big uh, tome about Angular. So, so there's some. I was going to say, you know about those big long comprehensive books. Oh, yeah, I, uh, I wrote one. And yeah, I think this new book was kind of meant to address a couple of shortcomings I've found with the end product of Professional Angular JS. It's a great book and a very kind of detailed, nitty gritty guide to Angular. But one thing that we did with that book was we broke it up into individual chapters. So each chapter was kind of its own digestible chunk. But that ended up being a little bit hard to manage for a book that was as long as that was because, you know, we needed to make sure that, okay, chapter eight doesn't rely on anything in chapter four or three. So we don't ask you to, you know, go back and say, okay, you need to read that if you want to just learn about, say, how data binding works. That ended up being a little bit of a mess. And I don't think we did as good of a job of that as we would like. Uh, the other problem was it was just very old school because we were writing everything in Microsoft Word. So I didn't really have, like, say, a full test suite for all of my examples uh, from the book. So occasionally, you know, the technical editor would go in and find a glaring bug in the uh, the source code. And I'd be like, oh, whoops, sorry. Nice. So uh, I have one more question for you, and that is, are you coming out to NGConf? 
Actually, I don't think so, but I don't really know what it is. I don't watch the CFPs as much as I should. All right. Well, if you are coming out to NGConf, I'm just going to put this out there and then we'll get to picks. Or you're going to be in the Salt Lake City area around uh, May 5th. The conference is the 4th through the 6th. We're going to do a meetup, a get-together. So most of the JavaScript Jabber hosts live here. Most of the Adventures in Angular hosts are coming out for the conference. And there are a few other folks that are on other various dev chat shows that are also uh, local people. So if you want to come out and meet some of us, we will be somewhere in downtown Salt Lake on May 5th. And uh, considering that it's the 21st of April now, I should probably finalize that and tell people where we're going to be. But yeah, so uh, keep an ear out. If you're on the mailing list for any of the shows, then you'll get that email. And you can get on those lists by going to devchat.tv or javascriptjabber.com and either signing up for, to get the top 10 episodes of this show or just sign up to get notified when we have new episodes out. Fun stuff. I booked my flight uh, yesterday, so I'll be out there too. Yay! <laughs> Great. Thanks. Looking Good forward topic. to it. We're looking forward to checking it out. All right. Well, let's go ahead and get to some picks. Amy, what are your picks? Okay, man. Since uh, we've been doing the Microsoft build stuff, I have a bunch, but I'm not going to spill them all at once. I'm going to save them up for the next couple episodes. But anyways, for today, I have one that I found. It's why and how testing can make you happier. I love testing. I love working in code that is highly tested. <laughs> so if you are a developer who's kind of like, eh, tests, I think that this blog post will help you understand why testing, well, like it says, will make you happier. Why it's more than just like writing tests, why it can help you in the process of writing your code, even if you don't really care so much about testing. So that's my first pick. And then my second pick, uh, non-programming related, if you're ever in the Baltimore or DC area, uh, I'm addicted to this ice cream. I only eat it on my cheat day Saturday because I try to eat really clean, but it's called Pentangelo. It's like gelato, but they have like these crazy flavors. It's all from cows that are grass fed. So it's kind of like healthy ice cream, but uh, man, it's really, really good stuff. So that's it for me this week. Ooh, I want some healthy ice cream, actually. Oh my gosh, it's so good. Like, they have, they have like these crazy flavors. They have one that's like black tea and just stuff that you wouldn't really think about normally. It's really good. Yeah, I'm afraid I've been relegated to sorbets and that kind of thing because I'm <laughs> intolerant, but. Oh, okay. But yeah, it sounds so good. Every time somebody talks about ice cream or milkshakes, I'm just like, oh. <laughs> it's, it's like. How badly do I not want to feel bad today? Oh, man, this stuff is so good. I'm addicted to it. Nice. I just got to say that I love the fact that cheat day is such an established term now. <laughs> <laughs> right? My cheat day is so, like, not what it used to be, though. Like, when I was early 20s, man, I would go all out. Now it's, like, very mellow. You talk about early 20s like it's so much younger than what you are now. I'm not disclosing my age. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I am however old you think I look like I am. I could make an educated guess, but you're a lady and I won't do that to you. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, I've got a couple of picks. I've been reading a couple of books. I've decided I decided a while ago I needed to change my health. And I kind of came across this program. And it's I hate to call it a diet because it really is kind of a lifestyle change. Like they don't give you some sunset on it. Do this until you lose 100 pounds or whatever. It's the Primal Blueprint. I read uh, the book by Mark Sisson. 
Oh, that's wonderful. I've actually been uh, paleo primal since about 2009, and I've actually met Mark on about two or three occasions. Nice. Awesome. So I, He's a really great guy. Yeah, I read that book, and I read the 21-day start or whatever it is. The 21-day primal blueprint transformation. Yeah, that one. <laughs> I have that sitting on my bookshelf. It's really good. And then I bought his recipe book, but not all the recipes are lactose-free friendly. So I've been trying to figure out what I'm going to do with those. I'm probably just going to find some substitute like coconut milk or something. But anyway, I've really been enjoying reading those. I was going to start primal eating this week, but I didn't plan ahead well enough. And so I'm working on getting a meal plan together for next week. You know, something that I'm comfortable doing for two or three weeks until I can kind of get in the groove and figure out what other things I want to try. Anyway, I'm really looking forward to it, and I think it'll really help with a number of things. I, I have type 2 diabetes, and uh, it's relatively low carb. In fact, a lot of the things that he talks about are a lot of things that they, if you go and read some of the literature about diabetes, they talk about the same stuff. It's just that they tell you to count carbs, and he tells you not to eat carbs, which are kind of, you know, or grains. So it's kind of a different view on things, and it's it's pretty interesting. I don't know that I buy into the entire premise on paleo as far as like we should eat how paleolithic humans eat. And I think that's why I liked the primal blueprint where I didn't really care for the paleo is because Mark has done an an immense amount of research into sort of the biochemistry and other science behind how our bodies work. And so when he was talking about how, you know, paleolithic humans didn't have certain types of food, I mean, I could kind of see that as an argument, but I feel like if that's the only argument, it doesn't really hold water. But then he would go into, you know, he would say, well, when you eat grains, it has these chemicals in it that do these kinds of things to you. And it causes this kind of response that has these effects in the body. And it's like, oh, yeah, well, (laughs) that's my problem my whole life. So anyway, super great books. So I'm going to pick those. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. No, I was going to say, ketosis is great for weight loss. <laughs> yeah. Well, but he, he talks about ketosis as a lifestyle. And that's the other thing that I yeah. really dig was that it's like, look, this stuff isn't good for you, even if you're at the right weight and right whatever. Yeah. So don't eat it. <laughs> you know, but at the same time, you know, they do offer that, you know, if you have to take a day and, you know, cheat on it or if you're traveling and you have to fudge a little bit, then, you know, do what you got to do. But. Yeah, anyway, I I really like the book. So I'll pick those, and then I'll probably talk about where I'm at here in a month or so. But yeah, I have about 40 or 50 pounds to lose. Uh, My diabetes numbers could be better, and that would allow me to get life insurance for my family and things like that in case I get hit by a bus. So anyway, uh, that was a long-winded pick. Just call me David Brady. (laughs) Oh, it's a great pick, and uh, best of luck to you, Chuck, um, with uh, with your diet. Well, if... It's not a diet. It's a living program. If I call it a diet, I will fail. Um, <laughs> if you've been doing it, Valeri, I might shoot you some emails for some pointers. Um, sure. I'm always happy to help. Awesome. Why don't you give us some picks? Oh, so my first pick, I mentioned my transpiler that compiles Mocha tests into documentation, going along with what Amy said. So the uh, the NPM module is called acquit, like, uh, like being acquitted of a crime. <laughs> Um, it's one of my, you know, just don't write a module without it modules. It's a great tool for just quickly generating lightweight documentation from a test suite, because ideally when you're writing something, you're writing tests for it. So why don't you just write docs as well? 
you just put comments in line with your Mocha tests and that all becomes a nice, pretty markdown file. Number two is the uh, is the nightmare module that I mentioned. It's on NPM, it's just lowercase nightmare. Um, it's a browser automation library based on Electron and written by the guys over at Segment. Surprisingly versatile browser automation because it only focuses on one quote, quote, browser and that's Electron. But it's a great Phantom JS alternative because it can actually spawn up a, uh, an Electron window and let you see what's actually going on in the Electron window. So you can actually visualize what your test suites are doing if something is going horribly wrong, which is really cool. And another thing that I've actually been playing around with a lot of late uh, is this new deployment tool called Now. Um, it's by a company called Zeit, Z-E-I-T. It's basically a Heroku alternative or Heroku killer specifically for Node applications. You just type now and you automatically get a URL to your Node project running in magical Cloudland. So you can pretty easily share, you know, like little APIs that you're working on, little projects with other people. And really cool. I'm looking forward to playing around with it some more. And well, one last pick uh, is my book, ES2015Generators.com, 80-20 guide. It's really short, really concise. We'll get you up to speed on generators. All right. Are you on Twitter or anything where people can follow you? Sure. On Twitter, I am at uh, code underscore barbarian. And um, you can find me on GitHub. Uh, my handle is V as in the first letter of my first name, Karpov as in my last name, 1515. Awesome. Well, thank you for coming. We're going to go ahead and wrap this one up, and we'll catch you all next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Do you wish you could be part of the discussion on JavaScript Jabber? Do you have a burning question for one of our guests? Now you can join the action at our membership forum. You can sign up at javascriptjabber.com slash jabber. And there you can join discussions with the regular panelists and our guests. 